Welcome to Institute for the Future's Future Now podcast, where we explore the latest ideas and actions shaping the world of tomorrow. In this episode, we discuss equitable enterprise, a new economic model that prioritizes collaboration over financialization. The conversation is led by Douglas Rushkoff, host of the Team Human podcast, and features IFTF Executive Director Marina Gorbis and University of Michigan Professor of Management and Organizations Jerry Davis. They examine the systemic and structural problems of the current economic model and the challenges of transitioning away from shareholder capitalism towards a more inclusive and collaborative way to create and share value. Join us for this thought-provoking conversation to gain a deeper understanding of the need for change in our current economic system. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Patsy Fraser, Stephen Weinstein, Ian Varley, Philip Sweet, Tracy Bradley, and your name here. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human salons. Our next salon will be this Friday, March 31st at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon California time and 8 p.m. in the UK. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine an opportunity to change the register. That doesn't mean changing people, but engendering a different comportment. It means denaturalizing power, triggering agency, re-socializing people, and cultivating awe. Let's start right here. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, two of my co-conspirators on the Institute for the Future's Equitable Enterprise Initiative Marina Gorbis and Jerry Davis. Well, imagine a world where every person were their own firm, and every morning when you wanted to show up for work, you went to a platform and bid for a job, and the lowest paid person above a certain quality level got the job. I don't think we want to live in that world. Gig workers who are barely making it, they call themselves entrepreneurs and risk takers, and they're taking classes online in entrepreneurship. It's a very different kind of entrepreneurship than Silicon Valley going to VC and pitching and getting billions of dollars. We're going to be looking at how to change the register from industrial insanity to collaborative commerce. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I'm going to be dedicating the next few uh, monologues on this show to this idea of changing the register. I spoke a bit about it last week in the uh, Kibitz Room episode, so take a listen to that if you haven't heard it. I kind of introduced this idea that instead of changing people, we can change the register, that is, the, the landscape, in order to engender maybe different behaviors and ideas from people. But we're not trying to manipulate people, right? We're not going to change people. What we want to do is let people, uh, let people be, right? And the first uh, way or technique or, or intervention uh, that I came up with, and it's really an old one for me, to help people change the register is what I'm calling uh, denaturalizing power. And 
it really goes to the 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 simple motto sort of if it ain't real don't fix it right we're living on a constructed landscape and a lot of times we try to affect change within the rules of the landscape as we know them rather than really questioning the rules themselves I mean, most most recently for me, this came up when I was giving a, a, a TV interview about the promise and peril of AI, and I was asked that inevitable question about the unemployment problem. You know, what are we going to do about all the jobs that are going to be lost to AI? And I paused, figuring it's an opportunity, right? And then I, I almost kind of half-jokingly responded, well, what if it's not an unemployment problem? but an unemployment solution. And I know it always comes off as kind of a, a, a half joke, but really, who wants a job, right? Who wants a job? We might want to work or we might want stuff, but jobs themselves are actually a rather recent invention. We've talked about that here before, right? They, they were created in the late Middle Ages after the establishment of the charter monopolies that made it illegal for any small business to compete with one of the king's officially chartered companies. So instead of making shoes and selling them at the market, the cobbler now had to go work for His Majesty's Royal Shoe Company, one of the favored merchants who offered a kickback to the crown for the exclusive right to monopolize a particular sector. What happens after that's really interesting, though, right? That's the moment in European history when the clock went on the highest tower in the town because that naturalized this human invention of wage labor, and the power that was embedded in these earliest corporations. Until that moment, the only people who had sold their time were indentured servants. You know, 500 years later, we now accept this kind of employment as a condition of nature. And that's the history I tried to chronicle back in my book, gosh, 2008 book, Life Inc., which sought to demonstrate that both central currency and corporations were invented by particular people with particular agendas at particular moments in history. We don't have to accept them as fixed features of our world. As the book's flap copy announced, this didn't just happen. That's why the first intervention to change the register that I'm calling for, the one that I think may be a prerequisite for all the others, is to denaturalize power. And it, it, maybe that's too complex a way of saying it. All I really mean is to help people recognize the underlying assumptions that are embedded in our world, inventions and social constructions that we mistakenly accept as conditions of nature. We are misconstruing the maps for the territory. So we have to work to reveal their origins, their, their manufacture, their biases, their agendas. So sure, as activists and change agents, we can argue over how the maps are being drawn. We can argue about who owns which piece of land. But more importantly, we need to remember that the maps themselves are not real. We must not simply compete or cheat over them, but rather play spoil sport to the whole accepted game and reveal it as a human construction. 
denaturalizing power. It means revealing the social constructions as inventions of people, not pre-existing conditions of reality. God didn't invent jobs. God didn't invent rent or prisons, policing, or money, or maps, or cars, or school, or social networks. These are all human institutions developed at particular moments in history by people with particular agendas. Some of them may be relevant and beneficial to people today, but all of them are manufactured and open to our reinvention. Just because we are born into a world that has these things doesn't mean they are sacred or indisputable fixtures. I recently argued, I've been doing this one a lot, but I I was doing a talk and I was arguing that, you know, how, how I do, that people begin sharing their big ticket industrial tools like lawnmowers and snowblowers. Why not have one lawnmower per block? And I did that, and and someone raised their hand, some kind of business dude, and he asked, well, that sounds great, but what about the people working at the lawnmower company? Aren't they going to lose their jobs? Right, And there it is, the pre-existing condition, the seemingly unmovable piece. But are we really here to serve the economy, or is the economy here to serve us? Do technology businesses really need to grow exponentially and have an exit in order to be successful? Why do we each need to save enough money in our working years to support ourselves in retirement? Why do cryptocurrencies have to support investors betting on the rising value of a token rather than people who want to transact in a less expensive way? Does crypto have to reify the values of traditional central currency, or could it reveal and challenge them? In order to begin even just asking these important kinds of questions, we need to be able to distinguish between what is really here and what was put here, what we actually need and what we're told we want, what are the pre-existing conditions of the natural world, and what are the synthetic rules and value statements we've been led to believe are the laws of nature. I'll have more interventions, three more, in the next three weeks. We've got a really special show for you today. It's the first of what I hope is a a regular uh, series of shows with people who are involved with the Equitable Enterprise Initiative at the Institute for the Future. Uh, I'm a part of it, along with, gosh, a whole bunch of cool people. Um, uh, Corey Doctorow, Astra Taylor, Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, um, really good people who are looking at, you know, how do we do what I'm kind of trying to say in that monologue? How do we change the register from one of uh, industrialism and profit and extraction uh, to one of mutuality and widespread distributed prosperity? This is not rocket science. If anything, it's the opposite. It makes certain rocket science unnecessary, right? We won't have to leave if, um, if we can work this out. So I've got two great people from the uh, Equitable Enterprise initiative today. Um, The first is Marina Gorbis, uh, who's been on the show before. She's my friend. She's also executive director of the Institute for the Future. If you haven't heard of it, it's very cool. It's a now 50-year-old nonprofit in Palo Alto dedicated less to 
predicting the future than ensuring one. Um, she's the author of The Nature of the Future, Dispatches from the Social Structed World. Get that word? Social Structed? It's a team human-esque understanding of where organizational structures come from. And she's also the originator of the idea of universal basic assets, a different framework for thinking about economic equality. And Jerry Davis is also with us today. He's a professor of business administration and sociology. Ah, yes, they can go together at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and their Department of Sociology. He's written a bunch of books. My personal favorite is called Managed by the Markets, How Finance Reshaped America. It's almost a, a, a smart bookend to my own uh, life, Inc., How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. Only, um, boy... Um, researched and thought out in uh, uh, really intelligent ways. Um, I'm honored to get to have someone like Jerry on this show. We are, all three of us, kindred spirits, and I hope this comes across in our conversation. This is the kind of conversation we have on a regular basis as participants in the IFTF's Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which we link to on the show notes. All right, so here's me, Marina, and Jerry trying to figure out how to change the register. This is actually a really interesting moment to have this conversation. You know, you, the three of us have been involved for at least a couple of years now, talking about economics and equitable enterprise and the things that we've been working on. And it feels like there's a public moment that maybe started with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and the stock market and interest rates and the Fed and LIBOR even. I mean, I'm finding people are finally sort of saying, wait, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And maybe in even more intelligent way than they said it back when Lehman crashed. I mean, do you agree that there's a, a rising awareness of some sort happening right now? You know, I've been thinking about Jerry's presentation, actually, at our 10-year forecast about the financial register mm -hmm. so much. It was so on the money, so to speak, <laughs> excuse me, using that term, but it was on the nose. And the timing was pretty amazing. It was right before this all happening. As you know, I'm calling my financial advisor. I'm looking at my accounts. Everybody's calling. All my relatives are calling each other. And my sister said to me, why do I have to worry about it? I don't want to be dealing with financial advisors. I don't want to be spending so much time on this. Why am I forced to do this? And it just brought up this issue that, Jerry, you were talking about. It's like we're all CFOs now. We've all been turned into CFOs of our households, where, whether we want it or not. And it was a political project to do that, as you talk about it. And it just happened at that moment, and I started thinking, why is this happening? Why are we so worried about it and checking all of that? And, you know, if you're lucky enough and you have any kind of resources in the bank or in your retirement account. So this whole notion that we've all now in this financial register, we have to understand rates of return. We have to know about bank failure and risks, and we have to manage those risks. We're all like these little hedge funds managers. 
Yeah, I, I feel that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that's happened is that with so much of the population invested, even a little bit in the stock market, they start paying attention to it. So most households in the U.S. own stock, a little over 50 percent. And, you know, most of those people don't own that much, but it's surprising what a powerful influence that has on how they view themselves and their relation to the world. Because if I ask you, how is your welfare going uh, as a worker, or as a homeowner, you might go to Zillow and say, I'm not so sure this is right. But like you could look up your net worth every single morning and say up, down, sideways, this is a good day, mm -hmm. this is a bad day. I talk about my poor sister who is a fourth grade teacher who came into some, some money that she invested in Fidelity and every morning she checks the value. And if it's up, it's uh, lunch at Red Lobster. And if it's down, it's tuna sandwich at her desk. And, and it's like these things don't just sit there. They sort of reach into your, your home like tentacles, giving you this connection to forces that are just far beyond your control. And economists call this the wealth effect. Price goes up, I'm rich. Price goes down, I'm poor. But normal people aren't, you know, if you had a bar of gold, you probably wouldn't be checking every day what its value was. But the market is so dynamic and so mysterious that it just it like creates this umbilical cord in some sense. And that's a unique U.S. phenomenon in some way, right? Like with in Japan with postal savings and, and in Germany and other places, it's not that everybody's managing their portfolios independently. The government or some entity manages it on your behalf. So you don't have to be checking stock market prices every day. Yeah, this is what, you know, Helene Olin wrote that book, Pound Foolish, you know, maybe 10 years ago, where she really chronicled the way the financial industry helped corporations end their pension funds, which was the easy, you just worked for a company. You never thought, I don't think our grandparents thought about the size of their retirement accounts. They were going to get some kind of a pension when they finished. It was good for the financial management industry to have one financial manager for every single worker's account than one to do a thousand or two thousand at the same company you know and now so yeah it became part of that great american i guess this register we're talking about which we have to define this register of individually responsible for my own retirement and i'm going to do well because i'm going to make good decisions with my good financial advisor but look at the amount of time that the average you know upper middle class say american is now spending shepherding their nest egg toward their retirement moment. And it's not an even playing field because obviously with the demise of the Silicon Valley Bank, some people knew what was going on in the bank, right? The management, uh, the board and others. Some were people in on this information. And you and I as individuals, I don't think we're privy to that information. So we don't have even the information, even if you are savvy in terms of finance and everything else, you don't have the insider information. Right. And for people who don't, aren't following, there's this big bank, Silicon Valley Bank in California, that all the cool startups and all the kind of tech people have been using. And what happened, I'll just tell you chronologically, is the executives at the bank, unbeknownst to anybody, started selling their shares, massive quantities of hundreds of millions of dollars of money. And then the bank uh, turned out not, <laughs> not to have enough money for to cover its uh it's creditors, not that any bank does, but they sort of made an announcement that they were doing a capital raise to shore up their finances. And then Peter Thiel and Jason Calacanis and some other uh, hotshot on Silicon Valley Twitter said, oh, my God, take your money out of this bank. They're going to crash. And um, that led to a run on the bank. And then they had to get 
bailed out. And that kind of panicky environment then spread to some other bank institutions. And now there's some worry about the uh, uh, solvency of the banking industry. But it's sort of a, a current problem that we're talking about because both 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 Jerry and Marina and I have been harping on some of the systemic and structural problems with American capitalism and economics as we understand it in the West and whether or not and how it's reaching a breaking point, what we can do to change it. So this became a kind of a, a schadenfreude kind of moment, I guess, <laughs> a, a bit, <laughs> but also one of, okay, now people are ready to hear what it is I hope that we've been um, worrying about for quite some time. But I kind of want to go back in time for us and go to um, sort of the genesis of what's happening. So Institute for the Future has been around for a long time, like 50 years now? Or 55 this year. 55 years. And I remember when I was younger and first hearing about it in the 80s and 90s, I thought of the Institute for the Future kind of like a smart people's Omni magazine, right? They were telling stories about like the future of tech and Stanford Research Institute and all the kind of, you know, the Silicon Valley, you're going to one day you're going to put these things on your head and you're going to see other things and we're going to be able to manipulate genes. And, you know, so it was telling very, what to me felt like positive positive stories about the future and why we should promote science and technology and education and development so we could seize the the opportunities that that an advanced human civilization will will provide us and Along the way now, because of all the various things that the future has actually done, <laughs> the echoes of the future that we're experiencing in the present, you've helped, Marina, sh kind of shift some of the focus of the, of the Institute towards social good and, and, you know, what we're now calling equitable enterprise. And I'm wondering sort of how that kind of awareness crept into what would have normally been thought of as boys playing with cool toys in the future. How did this kind of seep in? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting historical mm. note on the Institute for the Future. It was founded by mostly men who mm. were all like decision analysis people, technology people. But I do think that there were big also social thinkers like Jacques Vallée mm. and Bob Johansson and, and Paul Barron. And I think they were seeing this technology like many people who were working, Doug Engelbart and others, they were looking at these technologies in many ways as a liberating and democratizing force, right? And as we've approached the late 90s, the 2000s and the knots and all of that, it just became clear that as much as this technology does have capabilities for democratizing, creating commons, for gift economies, for all other things, it fell into the wrong register. And by register, we mean it fell into the vocabulary, the view of the world, the conception of the world that sees everything as an opportunity to make returns, to invest. It fell into that register of finance, into, you know, our identity as consumers, not workers, not citizens. Mm. There's the, all these, by that time, there was probably 50 years or more of neoliberal vocabulary and register that kind of permeated. And I don't think it's just the right wing or Republicans. It sort of permeated our thinking, all of our thinking, right? The Democrats, the you know, yeah. Clinton administration. Exactly. When you see Clinton and Blair, right, then yeah. you realize they are neoliberals too. You think, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. 
Yeah, it's almost like you can't think otherwise, or if you do think otherwise, like if you bring up the idea of public good or commons or mutuality, you're like, oh, you're just like this hopeless dreamer that should be discounted. And I just want people to listen to the speeches by FDR on the second Bill of Rights, where he talks about health care and education and child care as a right. It's mm. not a commodity. It's not framed as a consumer good. And so somehow, and it's not somehow, there are a lot of things happened that made this possible. I do think these technologies basically fell into a different register and, and it ate up these technologies and used them ultimately to basically create the kind of consumerist, investment-driven, financial returns, commodity-based thinking that we're all right. still living in. What Marina's describing is a very characteristically American way of of approaching this. So things that seem inevitable to us don't seem inevitable elsewhere in the world. So I use this phrase institutional terroir to describe sort of the soil and the climate that technologies grow up in. Think about the technology behind Uber. So you've got riders and drivers with GPS enabled smartphones and they find each other for a ride. So that is entirely the model of what Uber is. And variations on that model have happened all over the world. But the Uber model does not look at all the same in Germany, where they don't pronounce it Uber, or Sweden, or Indonesia, or Nigeria, or, or India, or China. We, we've sort of done these comparative cases, and the ride-hailing industry looks completely different elsewhere in the world. So it's not that two smartphones and GPS inevitably lead to this sort of Uber-like platform for connecting. There's a lot of other ways you could take that same technology and implement it, and that turns out to be true you know, pervasively with the kind of technologies that come out of Silicon Valley. The American way will always be, how do you use this technology to create markets and competition that will keep prices low for consumers who are ultimately sovereign? But that's not at all the way that same technology might get implemented elsewhere in the world. And so it's not built into the tech of Silicon Valley that it inevitably creates this atomized sort of marketized world. It could be used in very different ways. We just have this register or this institutional terroir that, you know, points us in a particular direction. It's interesting because, uh, you know, I come to this work originally as kind of as a uh well, as a theater director, but ultimately really as a media theorist. And, you know, this is what McLuhan or, or Postman would call a media environment, except I'm usually looking at it from the technology. So it's like, okay, you know, that a program like Uber or a smartphone creates this media environment, which engenders certain kinds of behavior. But you're kind of flipping it and saying, it's not just media and technologies that have environments. Capitalism makes an environment. It creates an atmosphere. And once you are, like McLuhan would say, you know, the fish doesn't recognize the water that they're swimming in. Once we're raised in a world with money and competition, Doug, you get a good, get into a good college so you can get a good job. You could buy a good house, get a good retirement plan. I mean, if I'm raised with that from the time I'm two years old, I accept those conditions at face value. So then anything that comes into this world, I was there when, when Bitcoin came up. Bitcoin came up, I thought, as part of Occupy, right? <laughs> share and share alike, local, you know, authentic peer-to-peer, -peer, get rid of the banks, and then Bitcoin ends up reifying 
this terroir or that word you use that it, it reifies the terrain in which it grows so that this thing that keeps being a mystery to people like me like wait a minute why do they keep taking each new technology and doing the absolute wrong thing with it is because well what else are they going to do if this is the register that they're in yeah but the other thing is that the register people are kind of defining, they're taking these words like democratization, they're using the words from that register and doing completely opposite with these technologies. So my lesson from all these years and seeing what happened with all the promise of these technologies, that whatever falls into that terroir, that terroir is going to use it for to create more inequality, to create more returns to few, and not to democratize. Like whatever comes out of Silicon Valley, all the pronouncement, I read them now is like the opposite is going to be true. Right. If they're saying it's going to democratize, it's going to monopolize. If it's going to make you better, it's going to make you worse off. Like, literally, that's my golden rule now. You're right. It's right. Like E-Trade and, and I'm Charles in Silicon Schwab. Valley, so. Right. All the online platforms. That was the one place I researched. All the online trading platforms that are going to democratize trading. They didn't. They just created a, a giant class of suckers in the stock market for the higher players to exploit. You know, they give you that fake. It looks like a trading desk with multiple windows and screens and a news feed. You're getting it information half an hour after the smart right. trader has already gotten it you know so it's again yeah. it is that it's the you could use the words if we could be conscious of it that each word means its opposite in this context yeah calling it democratization of the stock market like robin hood is democratizing stock trading like marina's describing i mean they're democratizing stock trading in the same way that Purdue Pharma democratized access to opioids. Right. That is not the meaning of democracy <laughs> at all. Easy access does not mean democracy. It's like kind of a horrifying inversion. Right. I mean, maybe we should go just a little bit to look at, although maybe it'll be boring for people. I don't know. And sort of where did the register that we're in come from, right? Is it British East India Trading Company? Is it the invention of central currency? Is it the rise of financialization? In other words, where does this come from? Is it Dale Carnegie and Think and Grow Rich and Prosperity Gospel? I mean, what are, I guess, what are the main tenets of the current environment or the current register that we should start to become more aware of? Just profit itself? Yeah, I think like these registers, they get created sort of invisibly to us. So it's a process of accumulation and layering one on top of the other. Like I've been thinking this whole register of us thinking of ourselves as a consumer and having that identity. Ralph Nader was the person who introduced the whole notion of consumer rights. And it was a good thing, right? And created all these organizations that protected consumers. But it ends up biting you in other ways, because then you shift everything to that kind of consumer mentality, like I deserve lower costs. The cost becomes the driver. So it's like slowly. Sometimes I think people on both sides. I don't know, Jerry, what, what you think. Sometimes it's a project that has uh, definite goals and it's uh, purposeful. And in other ways, I think we're all contributing to this mm. register where we don't know. And sometimes it comes from the left. You know, the idea that everybody has to be trained and retrained because of these new technologies, because we're all going to be automated. That comes from really good people and good institutions. It's a totally wrong, in my view, 
I, and I believe in education. I am a huge believer in education and training and learning and all of those things. But to say that we're, we need to retrain all these workers and put a burden on them to do it because they have to fit into an Amazon warehouse and do logistics or whatever they're going to do, it's just a false narrative, but it comes from really, you know, very progressive sources well, sometimes. Isn't it part, if it's the backbone of the Green New Deal, right? Take all the coal workers, have them stop digging coal, teach them how to make solar panels, and everything will be good. Yeah. But it won't. Right? I think that's right, though. <laughs> or, <laughs> right. Yeah, so you think it is right that, that we do just... Things change and we retrain, but maybe it's where we get the money to retrain maybe is a little different. We don't make them responsible. Yeah. I wanted to unpack sort of the ideology of the register yeah. that we're in a little Please. bit. So it was a, in a surprising way, 1982 was an underappreciated, unheralded year because there were three things that happened that maybe four things that happened that thoroughly transformed the American economy and how the U.S. related to the rest of the globe. So one of them was the first company adopted a 401k plan, which was that, you know, people getting invested in the stock market. So 1980, that was a huh. tax decision in 81, but the first company to adopt one, to the best of my knowledge, was 1982. And then everybody did it. And you mentioned someone's book about, about this topic. I advised a dissertation on the spread of defined contribution plans like 401ks. And, you know, at that time, 20% of households were invested in the stock market. 20 years later, it was 50%. And and the mutual fund industry had grown just enormous as this powerful force in society. Second thing was that the Justice Department changed their guidelines about who can buy whom. And they changed their merger guidelines. And the third thing is that the Supreme Court struck down state laws against hostile takeovers and within eight years, one in three Fortune 500 companies got bought. Mm. And companies were getting bought not to be integrated into their competitors. They were being bought to be busted up. So you would take a company that was operating, you know, take something that looks like ITT, and they've got copper mines and phone companies and insurance companies and Hartford Insurance and hotels and trade schools. They were just these crazy conglomerates. That was the norm in the American economy in 1982. Most of the economy, you know, at least among the big firms, were these big old conglomerates that weren't just in one industry. They might be in three dozen different industries. And that was kind of the result of the prior register, which is big is good. The goal of a corporation is to get big, to sell more stuff year after year. CEOs got paid for running big companies, having lots of revenues, because of economies of scale, right? So ultimately, it's cheaper. You produce something and the prices are cheaper. Well, it would be if they were steel companies, but something like ITT, they're doing a whole bunch of random unrelated stuff. And so so it's harder to see the economies of scale there. They ended up being heavily undervalued by the stock market. But we'd seen, you know, from the 30s until the 80s, big was good. Growing big was good. And if you work for a company like ITT, they're going to have career ladders and you can stay there until you retire. All of that sort of abruptly ended in the 1980s with a wave of hostile takeovers that threatened, you know, even the biggest companies could be bought and split into parts and you could end up being laid off. So that was just the, the end of the post-war growth. And in one sense, then, the 401k plan is actually good in that sense, because if you're depending on the pension from a single company and that single company goes under, if your retirement savings, assuming you have them, are portable, you take them with you to the next company. I mean, it's sort of a an argument 
for them, not against them. No, exactly correct. And in, in fact, if you wanted to be on the side of the, you know, the world of stock owners, you'd say this is a great way to buy people off because you know, when, it, when a company gets taken over, you make an immediate pop. You get an immediate burst in the share price. And so it's a benefit to you as an investor to see companies taken over, not your own, but right. other people's. And so it sort of created a political constituency for, for things like hostile takeovers and shareholder value and saying the most important thing about a corporation is, you know, to create shareholder value. And all of these things sort of combine together to create this reinforcing dynamic of companies, you know, having fewer and fewer employees, being narrow and narrow in focus, and being oriented towards shareholder value. I have to add one more thing that happened in 1982 is what came to be known as the Mexican debt crisis, which was that Mexico defaulted on its debt. And then all over the global south, there were sort of countries defaulting on their bank loans to, to banks like Citigroup. And that was kind of the end of bank lending to states and the origin of the phrase emerging markets. So what used to be called the third world, a couple of years later, got recoded as emerging <laughs> markets where you could invest in the stock of local companies. And then within two or three decades, most countries around the world adopted a stock market. Wow. It's like the New York Times when they when they name a new neighborhood, you know, that some place that used to be called projects. Now we're going to call it like, you know, Diamond Edge, you know, New York or something. And, uh, yeah. and, you, and it, it's a real estate and it's got something for the real estate. So it's sort of the same thing that these these countries that used to get lent to, I guess, by Citibank or the World Bank or the IMF. Now it's like, oh, you know, now you can go. There's a nice fund, a brick fund or this fund or that for these kinds of countries. Yeah, exactly right. And that's still the model we have today. The IMF definitely helped spread this thing. But you suddenly saw around the world sprouting like mushrooms after a rainstorm, uh, countries creating local stock exchanges. And the theory was maybe terroir doesn't matter so much. Maybe if we could implant a stock exchange in Honduras or Guatemala, then entrepreneurs will just come out of the woodwork to be able to attract investors from around the world in their local stock market and everywhere will look like Silicon Valley. Didn't pan out the way they expected, but, but that was kind of the working theory is that we're going to create conduits for capital to flow around the world to entrepreneurs. You know, capital can come from anywhere and entrepreneurs can be anywhere. And we're just going to create this market system to create them. Right. So you add all these and all these things happened in 1982 is almost like, you know, a harmonic, a disharmonic convergence or something in favor of financial markets. Right. And I think that's where I would point to as, as the turning point for the register we're in now. But the advent of digital on top of that, did that just exacerbate and accelerate these same things, like sort of Enron them, you know, where Enron is like, oh, now we could have virtual gas and virtual oil and trade it on these computers and do all that. Is that all Silicon Valley did or digital change the register to something else? I think that within the terroir of shareholder capitalism, digital pointed in a very particular direction. So think about like the spreadsheet, like imagine trying to throw 3,000 mortgages together into one big pot and slice it up into bonds before you had online spreadsheets. It's like impossible right. to imagine. <laughs> you know, what you need is like a, a spreadsheet with 3,000 rows so you can value each of those things and stress test them. And so securitizing things, you know, starting with mortgages, but then auto loans or 
David Bowie's royalties or parking meter collections from, you know, in Chicago in the future. Like the ability to value these things depended on technology like the spreadsheet and people having, you know, having computing technology in front of them to be able to evaluate these things. And then the web added a layer of complication or a layer of fun because you were not stuck with domestic providers for you know, your hard drives or whatever. You could shop around the world and send orders over the web and inspect factories remotely. And so it enabled a kind of, it created markets for things that just weren't practical before. So am I going to invest in the Philippines if the only thing I know about it comes from a newspaper? Maybe not. But if I can be on the web, I can do research, I can watch the movement of the market in real time, then I'm kind of like those guys on, on Wall Street. And, you know, fast forward to 2020 and, you know, kids at the bus stop in Menlo Park are on Robin Hood trading GameStop futures. Right. <laughs> so, right. So that's kind of the logical. But then there's meta things on them. Then there's algorithms trading on whether those kids are going to be doing it and algorithms trading on the algorithms <laughs> that are looking at whether or not the kids are going to be doing that. Right. So the sort of the thing that you're talking about, which is you could like I can invest in oil a year from now, or I could invest in whoever else just invested in oil a year from now, or I can invest in the people who invested in the people who are investing in a fictional oil 10 years from now, right? So digital lets you do basically phantom investing at that point, right? You're investing in all of these synthetically derived things. Which then magically flop and disappear, right? Right. right? Leaving someone holding, at least in the old days, you were left holding the bag. Now you're left holding the not bag, right? <laughs> You've got an NFT bag. Right. Well, it's, it's all magic, right? Like a lot of money is magic. If you believe that it's worth something, then you go for it and you invest and you buy this and just magic, like magic, it disappears suddenly. Right. I wanted to bring the other part of the terroir, and I would love to hear what you say about that, Jerry. Well, both of you is the antitrust and how the antitrust itself moved into a different sort of interpretation where early it was all about regulating and limiting the power of powerful enterprises. And then it became the new register is like, as long as it doesn't harm the consumer and the prices, it's fine. And so that kind of coincides with that consumer identity. Every one of us feeling, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter that we have four airlines if my ticket prices are lower. It doesn't matter if, uh, you know, my book, uh, there's only like three publishers. I don't know how many, and they're constantly merging. As long as (laughs) books are cheap and I can buy them on Kindle. And so, you know, that kind of... The antitrust interpretation, the Borkin antitrust, is part of that register, and also it's, of course, adding to that register, and that combined with that consumer identity. My primary identity really is a consumer, is an investor. It's not as a worker or a citizen, is kind of enabling that. Yeah, I just uh, recently published a book on the, the limits of the antitrust way of thinking about the world. So... I mean, a fun exercise is to go back and look at who was in the Dow Jones Index in 1910, and they all had their industry right there in their name. It was like U.S. Steel, U.S. Rubber, mm-hmm. American Sugar, Amalgamated Copper. Yeah. It sounds like a Mussolini 
extreme, you know? I mean, they were very tangible goods, you know, a raw material or, you know, steel one or, one or two steps away from being a raw material. And it's really easy to visualize. There's only so much steel in the right. world. It can only come from so many factories or copper or sugar. Like you could imagine dominating a market and what that would look like. But think about Robin Hood. So when they went public, they said that their industry was business services, not elsewhere classified. They weren't a brokerage because they're not a brokerage. They don't actually fulfill the orders, right? They get paid for direction of order flow. The reason they're able to not charge their customers is they're not really their customers. Right. They are taking the order, transferring it to somebody else, and creating information along the way. And so, you know, even the, the most basic classification of what industry are you in exactly turns out to be really complicated. If you think about sort of some of the Silicon Valley companies that have gone public in the last couple of years, like Uber says, we are absolutely not a transportation company. We create markets that connect parties. Riders and drivers could be somebody else, but we're really a market making organization definitely not a transit company and should not be you know compared with taxi companies because right. that's not or what regulated they do. as such well, of course yeah. they're trying to say that <laughs> and you know if you ask like what does coinbase do well they're a cryptocurrency exchange but they're also listed as business services not elsewhere classified because they're not really a brokerage that they're not really a bank but are, is crypto a, a kind of security or something other than that? We're kind of living with the limits of our categories for understanding what is, what is an industry and what does it mean to dominate it? Like what counts as big these days? When DoorDash went public, they claimed to have, you know, half million drivers and millions and millions of customers and 3,000 employees. Nobody worked there. They rented server space from Amazon. <laughs> and so... The, even basic metaphors like size turn out to be really complicated. So I feel like we're, we're at the end of the right. of our capacity to dissect the economy using the kind of categories that antitrust is built on. Right. But that doesn't mean that antitrust laws and the kind of thinking should not be applied. It's just the terminology is very different. So if you think about Uber or Facebook or Twitter today, you know, like they're what Corey calls choke points. You know, they control markets. They create platforms that control markets. And once you're tied to that and you have all these legacy and it's very hard to transfer from these platforms, you know, they own the information. So it doesn't it doesn't mean we shouldn't apply antitrust laws. It's just like it has to be, the terms have to be changed, the measurement has to be changed. But ultimately, do they damage, do they give too much power to certain players? Absolutely, they do. You know, they don't have a lot of employees, so that doesn't matter. You know, it's not clear what industry they're in. So there's got to be some new measurements of how yeah. you look at dominance. And if the idea of antitrust is to distribute power, and, and to have some governance of these platforms, then we definitely need it. It just needs to be applied differently. But I think Jerry's also suggesting that monopolies are less the cause than the result of this register. In other words, they're a, they're, they've become almost a symptom. And if we keep attacking monopolies for monopoly's sake, we're not de ultimately addressing the root cause I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I didn't think antitrust by itself is a solution. I mean, and it's interesting. So, I mean, back to what the, to the, the project of equitable enterprise. I mean, so Marina, what you did in seeing the ravages of this 
of this <laughs> register on real human beings and not just necessarily upper middle class 401k plan holders. I wouldn't want people to think that's who we're talking about, but the precarious lives of former employees and workers who are now gig workers at best and homeless people in Berkeley at middle. Uh, you know, I don't even know what worst is. You gathered a bunch of us and including a bunch of, you know, team human uh, former guests, people like Astra Taylor, Jessica Gordon-Nampart, Esteban Kelly, Corey, who we mentioned, to really start looking in depth at this register and alternatives to it. And I mean, there's anybody can go, you can go to IFTF.org and find um, Equitable Enterprise and you'll see some of the people and some of the work. And so much of it is inspiring stuff, you know, but the kind of stuff we talk about on this show, platform cooperatives and the stuff that Jessica Gordon-Nampart talks about, the, the whole history of black cooperativism in America over 200 years, the kinds of, uh, you know, the, 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 worker-owned window company that, that Astra writes about, the people taking back the, their IP in the way that Corey talks about. But what we kind of concluded as a group was that it's very hard to just talk about any of these things in the current environment because it's just frou-frou. It sounds like frou-frou, you know, white, progressive, cultural, creative, lefty, Oprah, blah, blah, and not a hardcore, actionable approach to the future of enterprise. So it's a long way of coming around to where we got to after a year or two was saying, okay, we've got to address the actual, the register itself here. We've got to engender a different in environment itself. And that's scary to a lot of people if we were successful, say. And we engendered a different, uh, an environment or a, a landscape of just mutualism. You know, one of uh, Marina's great I think you came up with that term as a way of describing mutual aid in a way that's less threatening <laughs> to people. Mutualism, in other words, a, a parallel circular economy. Does that crash the economy as we know it? I mean, are we talking a little bit here about kind of degrowth? I mean, which is now considered a nasty word, but is there a necessary hard landing of some sort, necessary pain in order to move to what it is that we're hoping for? Yeah, we probably have different ideas. But here's what I've been thinking is that I personally, I believe in markets, you know, I believe in well functioning markets, and they should work regulated and healthy capitalism is not a bad idea. I right. grew up in a place where in a very different system, there is no first of all, there are no utopias, you know, there's no ideal systems. And there's always some level of injustice and some levels of inequality. You know, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be fighting and trying to do better. But I, I do believe in markets. I think we've gone to a place where we don't even have markets. We have a lot of what I say, what I think is this legalized corruption. However, you know, everything became a commodity, including our politics. We buy votes. You know, lobbying is a form of corruption. It's a legalized form of corruption. If we look at other places, I'm involved with the investigative journalism organizations that are tracking this kind of corruption of moving money for votes, for political gains. And we complain about it when it's applied to somebody else. But we have a legalized form of corruption in this country. Our 
elections are paid for, our votes are openly, openly being bought and sold. So <laughs> we don't have that kind of a good market, you know, healthy market systems now. And what I kind of see in equitable enterprise is can we set up places and spaces for alternative forms of, of business, for alternative forms that at least provide an alternative so that people who want to not work in, you know, corporate organizations or highly inequitable places or create technologies that are open, that are accessible and commons-based, can we at least enable this as an alternative? So if you want to do differently, and we don't have a level playing field for those kind of enterprises for those kind of businesses. They don't have the same level of access to capital. People don't know about them. It's not what business schools teach. There are no case studies. Federated organizations, you know, there's examples of that, co-ops. That's not what business schools teach. So it's sort of creating an alternative that even having that alternative hopefully makes the other side a little bit better because it gives people a little bit of a choice. And is that DAOs? You look at that? Oh, I, God, I mean, no. <laughs> no. So you mean more like the people buying back their company? I'm thinking of more like Mondragon, you know, in Spain yeah. or Arvizmendi here in the Bay Area of many, many co-ops and community. I'm thinking of public banks, you know, the conversations mm -hmm. about given what's happening with the Silicon Valley Bank and others. One of our fellows just wrote she's been involved in the public banking system. I mean, in some ways, we do have a public banking system because ultimately FDIC is propping up right. the banks. They just bought a bank. So de facto, in a very roundabout way, we do have public banks. Right. But this sane capitalism that you're talking about is a capitalism that, that will necessarily deflate the synthetically amplified yes. bubbles. And someone's going to be upset about that if we're just buying and selling real things again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I feel I need to give the, the responsible opposing viewpoint, uh, as we elderly people uh, might might remember from the olden times of responsible opposing viewpoints. Um, You're wearing a tie. You're allowed. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm wearing a tie. And I, I, uh, and I do teach in a business school, and I did earlier today. And we're teaching a class on building equitable enterprises, and it's inspired by Institute for the Future and our project over the last couple of years. And in some sense, so Marina said, you know, these companies can't get access to capital or there aren't really markets. I'm going to want to disagree with both of those and say that there are markets for everything now, including all of the core components for putting together an enterprise. So if you need to raise money for your local barbershop or restaurant or collectively owned internet provider, there are so many platforms for fundraising. You can do sort of crowdsourcing debt or equity or revenue sharing agreements. And these are spreading all over the U.S. It, it took a while. It was sort of part of the, the Jobs Act of 2012, the completely ill-named Jobs Act. But it took the SEC a few years to put in place a set of rules, but there's now mechanisms for people to sort of invest, you know, modest amounts of money in local enterprises, and they're really taking off. There's a whole movement around locavore investing. And so, you know, many people are sad that community banks are going away. I assume that they believe that Mr. Potter was the hero of It's a Wonderful Life, because I'm not sure that community banks are as delightful as they seem to think. 
But banking is a function. It doesn't have to be a particular institution with a marble lobby and pillars. There's a lot of ways you can raise money that could be more locally sourced. Similarly, supply chains have now been so disaggregated and organizations are so used to the idea that I come up with a design and it's implemented somewhere else that you could now imagine the designs of products being globally sourced but locally produced. So how about I have a municipally owned universal fabrication facility that takes the place of an IKEA? Mm -hmm. um, technologically, this is possible right now. I mean, you could make almost anything in the IKEA catalog with a couple of shop-bought routers. I'm overstating, but but not entirely. Similarly, distribution channels. There's a lot that people don't love about Amazon, but on the other hand, they also enable, you know, one of Jessica Gordon Nembhard's favorite companies is a group of high school students in South Central Los Angeles who created a kind of salad dressing and they distributed it on Amazon. And so, so in some sense, I will not use the word democratize to describe this. But if you if you want to create an enterprise, you normally need capital, labor, supply, distribution, some form of organization, probably a legal format. Well, you could be a perpetual purpose trust. You could be a certified B corporation or a community benefit corporation. You could incorporate an E-Estonia and completely avoid the United States. There's so many ways to raise capital, to manage people. And so we've got all the raw materials. We're just not implementing them in a democratic way. But but there's nothing about the technologies that, that requires them to be assembled and to share their own corporations. So I agree with a lot of what Jerry's saying, yeah. but not everybody's taking Jerry's class. I hope more people will be doing it about how to do it. Not a lot of people know it, but here's another issue, which is, yes, it's possible to do all of those things. But when you have this tremendous inequality where so much capital is sitting in so few hands, how do you prevent that capital from not acquiring all of the little, you know, what's happening with doctor's offices? The hedge funds, the investment companies, they're acquiring all of these small businesses, all of these small practices, and basically they are aggregating them. And it's really hard when you have the surplus in very few hands, right? It's looking for places to invest. So it's basically gobbling up. It's gobbling up small restaurants. It's gobbling up, you know, the ghost kitchens. The The other side is very much there. So yes, it's possible to do, but the other side of that is it, it makes it challenging to stay that way, to stay relatively small, relatively local. Even those examples of people using Amazon as distribution, you know what Amazon is doing. They're looking at data and saying, this is a profitable product. There is a lot of demand. Let us do it instead of you. So right. this is happening. This is what happens right. when you start. Th that's what I mean. The level playing yeah. field is not there. Yeah. I mean, the one example of Jerry that that you brought up that it's profound to me is this reversal of what we normally think of as buying local. So right now, for most people, buying local means you go to the local store to buy the thing that you could have gotten on Amazon. So how is that really helping your local economy? Well, the local merchant gets the markup, but you're not buying local. Whereas the model that you're talking about, whereas if there's a commons of, uh, say, furniture plans, and there's a commons, we just contribute our best ideas, and then local businesses could have the wood 
and the router and the labor to put the thing, you know, because the robot doesn't do it by itself. There's still workers and carpenters around. They build it to spec and you pay for that. Then your money is going entirely locally, right? To your local timber. And you're using a distributed mass global universal blah, blah technology in a way that's non-extractive. And that little flip, you know, it requires a certain amount of education, though, for people to understand, no, 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 that's good local. That's local where the money is going to be retained by the community versus fake local where you're just you, where it's exiting from a local door you know, <laughs> rather than anything else. And those sorts of examples. I mean, do you teach that in business school? If that's an example of the kind of thing that we kind of all agree is a good direction for our economy to go because it's sort of locally owned. It's got all the kind of good Mondragani cooperative stuff that Marina wants, and it's got the sort of reverse polarity economically that Jerry wants. Then it's just a matter of, well, how do we, and I hate to even use language like this, how do we convince people that that's a better course than just getting a job for as long as you can, shoving as much into your 401k plan and hoping you make it before the crash? Yeah, I, I am at least modestly optimistic about this because there's a lot of threads for this in American history. If you go back to the late 19th century, like the entire northern tier of the U.S. was filled with farmer-owned co-ops. You know, some of these things still exist today. Mm -hmm. Lando Lakes is a co-op. I think it's a Fortune 100 company. Mm -hmm. State Farm is a mutual. Vanguard, which is the largest shareholder of 351 of the 1,000 largest U.S. corporations by revenues, is a mutual. Vanguard is not owned by dirty investors somewhere. It's owned by the people that put their money into Vanguard funds, just the way State Farm and other mutual insurance companies. And so more than people realize, there are already alternatives to traditional shareholder-owned corporations in the U.S. And in fact, there are about half as many public corporations today in the U.S. as there were 25 years ago. It's quite remarkable. It's not just the dot-com bust or 2008. There's been this secular decline in the number of stock market-listed corporations. If you go back and look at you know, who was in the, the, the Dow Jones Index 30 years ago, most of them are dead. Uh, or they're, you know, I, I think Eastman Codex, a right. patent troll now or something like that. And, you know, Westinghouse is now called CBS or maybe it's Viacom. But... Those, those big old firms have sort of disappeared and they're not being replaced. I remember reading at the end of last year. But this is not because like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg took all the money, right? So I think that we're actually at a situation where you can start a business for really, really cheap. And so the notion of going public, you know, the, re the reason why General Motors or AT&T went public was they needed a whole lot of money to be able to build factories and phone lines or, you know, train lines or chain stores or whatever. They actually needed the cash. Zoom doesn't need the money. <laughs> They're renting server space and they don't have any employees. And more and more of the businesses going public don't really have particular assets. They just don't have capital needs. And so what Marina was describing, this aggregation of huge amounts of capital, I don't know if you've been tracking this, but those huge amounts of capital tend to invest in really stupid ideas. I mean, I would, uh, I'm not going to call out SoftBank specifically, but I would say, you know, if you were funding WeWork and Uber and, you know, go down the list, things that were supposed to be transformative. But they're also buying up trailer parks. They're buying up doctor's offices. They're buying up all Land. kinds of other things. Yeah. yeah. 
So, uh, but I but but look at WeWork. They were renting things, you know, taking on giant leases yeah. and, and going across the country and driving everyone else in this space out of business. Turned out the whole idea is actually stupid. I mean, the notion <laughs> that we're going to monopolize a bad a bad industry just doesn't, uh, you know, like Zillow was going to own all the real estate in America by buying it up sight unseen and then flipping it. Yeah, it didn't pan out so well. Right. So the the fact that investors do things doesn't mean. They know anything sure. that that they're smart, yeah. <laughs> or that they're going to end up owning, you know, all the doctors' offices in America. Yeah. Like, if it turns out that having one centralized controller of doctors' offices makes sense, you know, then Bernie Sanders is right. We should have a national healthcare plan like every other civilized country in the world. And you know, maybe there are some economies of scale where if the medical system were all on one footing, so maybe they'll be doing us a favor: buy up all the doctor doctors' right. offices, and then we can nationalize it. Oh my God! Yeah, the pain <laughs> along the, the way. That last step is not going to happen in this register of nationalizing them. <laughs> Right. Because, so then, sorry. so then, I mean, but but I am. What I want to say, I am hopeful. I I I I agree with Jerry. I think it's possible to do things. I wish more people knew that it's possible because I don't think it's widely. That's why you know you're teaching your course, which is great. I mean, the some of the things we want to accomplish is to make this more amplify these stories. You know, tell these stories so more people know these stories. I think one of the reasons why we started this, we were doing uh, research and ethnographic interviews with low wage workers, and it's amazing to kind of hear people's stories about how much they themselves believe in that register which is, it's my fault that I don't make more money. When you ask people who are working three jobs and barely making ends meet, you ask them what can change. They never talk about, oh, you know, the banking system or this needs to change or this regulation. They talk about, I need to learn to save more. I need to take this college course. So the blame has been shifted on the individuals and I think we need to change that register where people believe that it's not a, their fault, just like having diabetes is not your individual fault. It has to do with our system, food system. It has to do with all kinds of social factors, not your individual. And I think this story has been, this narrative has been sold to so many people and they believe in that. And somehow we need to disrupt, we need to denormalize it. Doug. Right. Because if your financial success is a result of your skill or God's grace, well, then your financial ruin must be indicative of something wrong with you. Exactly. You know, is it last week, the Business History Conference was held in Detroit and I was there and it was a fantastic gathering of historians. I was on a panel about entrepreneurship as a form of ideology. And sort of the broad theme of that discussion was that entrepreneurship is sort of everywhere in the culture and yet hardly anywhere on the ground. You know, one of the striking statistics is that if you measure startups as businesses that that are less than a year old and have at least one employee, so let's stipulate that's what we mean by a startup. They got to have at least one employee that's not the owner. There are half as many in recent times as there were when Jimmy Carter was president. I mean, it's been this incredible decline in the number of small enterprises that employ at least one person. And so we see entrepreneurship, but really what we're saying is if you're an Uber driver, you're the CEO of a brand called you. You are, the, you are a self-employed entrepreneur running a company that happens to be driving for Uber. 
But that's also, I think, an aspect of this register, the notion that we're all entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. Yeah. I had a chapter in the last book called Every Man an LLC, yeah. which sounds like something from the 19th century. But that notion, and my, my worry is that, that some of the particular populist takes on antitrust valorize competition and say, we want to have as much competition as possible. Well, imagine a world where every person were their own firm. And every morning when you wanted to show up for work, you went to a platform and bid for a job and the lowest paid person above a certain quality level got the job. We got the technology to do that now. I don't think we want to live in that world where everyone is a self-employed entrepreneur bidding against other self-employed entrepreneurs. That's the experience of people I see at the, at the Home Depot parking lot every morning in Yonkers that basically takes place. <laughs> but isn't today's antitrust is actually promoting that? Because if you are one person LLC and you band with others... That's considered collusion. So the today's right. antitrust is actually working against small companies and individuals. You mean today meaning Lena Khan or today meaning yeah, three, three years, years ago? Three years ago, yeah. Gotcha. Well, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, not so sure. I think this is something, I mean, for companies to be able to completely offload employment to the outside world, you know, your institute work has shown through the ethnographies of low-wage workers, it's like they are absorbing all, the all of the transaction yeah. costs, yeah. the risks, the transaction costs. I mean, if you're spending two hours a night looking for your next gig, that is unpaid, just waste of time yep. labor that you wouldn't have with a full-time job. And I mean, to take the employer's perspective on this, the Geyser Family Foundation surveys employers to find out how much they're paying for health insurance every year. The last year that I checked, the average price for an employer to provide health insurance to a head of household is $22,000 a year, which is more than the median wage of, at, uh, at Walmart and most other retail employees. So to provide a basic level of health care to a head of household is as much as it costs to to hire someone, like to you know to pay annual compensation. So we've made it really unattractive to employ people, and we've created all of these this infrastructure to enable people to be self-employed entrepreneurs in you know in the gig economy and valorizing their independence and choosing their own hours. I mean, some of that's not hokum, but but it could really lead to an incredibly atomized and precarious existence, you know, quite broadly. Right. I mean, and this, uh, the technology platforms providing those playing fields are make, <laughs> scooping off a lot of money in the process. I mean, it doesn't, it's not necessarily more financially uh, efficient. And yet, you know, people, speaking of the register, people have been sold this idea as something. They, gig workers who are barely making it, they call themselves entrepreneurs and risk takers, and they're taking classes online in entrepreneurship. It's a very different kind of entrepreneurship than Silicon Valley going to VC and pitching and getting billions of dollars for your startup. Right. But then at a certain point, who are we to tell them that it's not? The most painful position I'm ever in is trying to tell someone, oh, no, you're not an empowered individual. You're an exploited gig worker. It's like, how dare I say that to the guy driving me around in an Uber, right? You know, I just went to San Francisco has a tenderloin museum in the tenderloin, and they have an exhibit now of this labor school that existed in the Tenderloin in right by the SEIU, the union. And this labor school was a school where 
people, workers were educated. They did theater productions. They were, you know, took classes in philosophy and all of that. So this is what unions used to do. You didn't just educate people to be a pipe fitter or to put in solar panels, which I agree with Jerry's very good idea to educate people on that. But, you, you know, they provided kind of education and politics and philosophy and all these other things. I think there have been such an incredible dumbing down of workers and labor. So all these conversations are now, and that kind of education is the domain of the elites, right? The liberal mm -hmm. arts, the politics, political economy, philosophy. The, but you get educated to be a pipe fitter or to put in solar panels. I don't see why you can't be educated and trained to be a solar panel installer and yet know history and know philosophy and know politics and all of these things because that's part of being a citizen, right? That's part of what it is to be in this community. And so that labor school was so, so interesting. You know, in the old uh, cigar factories in Miami and in Cuba, they had these lectoras, which were readers, and they were elected by workers, selected by workers. They were performers. Doug, you could have been, Douglas, you could be one of them, seriously, Jerry too. Mm -hmm. uh, and the workers actually paid them, and they, while workers were rolling cigars. They were reading newspapers to them. They were reading novels. They were reading all these, you know, what you get in universities and schools. And they were giving them good education until the owners decided they were too subversive and the, the workers started rebelling against the owners. So not surprisingly today, you know, in Florida, we're talking about the right wing is trying to position education as propaganda. Yeah, you get people to understand why they are in the circumstances they're in. It's not because of them. It's because of something else. This is what, Douglas, your four principles that you talked about for changing the narrative. One is understanding how you got here. Why right. are you here? And that happens a lot as we're looking at these equitable enterprises and co-ops in these community trusts. The leaders are doing a lot of that kind of education about kind of the larger economy of where am I here? Why am I here? I have to say that the, the, the university nearest to Institute for the Future, half of the undergraduates are engineering majors and half of those are computer scientists. Mm. So I'm not sure how much uh, training for you know, civic life is going on there, maybe we could hire lectors to read Thucydides while the kids are coding. Well, that is the interesting thing, though. I mean, oh, maybe I that's an that interesting... Idea. <laughs> it's an interesting place to actually to end is in, in education. You know, and one of my gripes has been that education's become a way for, you know, the corporate sector to externalize the cost of worker training, whereas we know that the real history of public education was to provide a human being with some dignity. If he was going to be working in the coal mines all day, he should know how to read and be able to engage with politics and understand history, that this was the human thing. And, and likewise, business education has been, even though it might be to make people rich, it's really educating people for how can they serve the existing register. And it, what you're trying to do, I think, with the uh, business school, the business program that you're developing, Jerry, is to, to give business people the right to an actual education about <laughs> The the underlying assumptions of the business landscape as it currently operates and the opportunities to do things differently. 
Yeah, that's, that is very much the way that we're thinking about this, is this is sort of the pointy end of the wedge trying to change what goes on in business schools. We try to incorporate students from all across the campus. I have to share this statistic because it is one of my favorites. Whenever you hear a governor of a Confederate state talking about gender studies majors or whatever, and they use this as this foil, business is by far the most popular major in America. Like nothing else comes close to business. And in fact, for every area, gender, ethnic, cultural studies major, there are 50 business majors. Everybody studies oh business. Nobody studies gender studies or... or Psychology. Um, <laughs> well, psychology is a little bit bigger, but, but literally there's 7,000 graduates a year in the United States for all of those combinations of area studies, cultural studies, you know, peace studies, gender studies. So, so nobody actually studies those things. Governors that are trying to save taxpayer dollars... Their students are studying business, so yeah. they, 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 they really need to, they need to look elsewhere. And that in itself explains a lot of why we're in this register. You probably have seen this study that uh, when you hire, when companies hire somebody with an MBA, the wages go down right away. Well, yeah, and it's it's that Jack Welch idea of business, the the former head of uh, CEO of GE, which is that anybody who's involved in the actual doing of work or creation of something is the sucker, right? And the the smart one, the college boy, is going to be the one who is operating one level above the actual creation of value and just financializing it, which is what most business schools are teaching. Which kind of brings up the whole notion of what is the purpose of business in society in society, I mean, as a social organization, right? Like, what is the purpose to create returns to investors? Oh, is that... it's so the strong can exploit the weak, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, responsible opposing viewpoint again. Um, yeah. Well, what is the purpose of business in society, Jerry? The real purpose is for people to be able to exchange goods and value and, and to exchange value amongst each other. Yeah, that feels right. I mean, I would say what is the purpose of business schools yeah. is we're pretty good at training people to take all of these parts and putting them together in some kind of sustainable whole. And so there's there's lots of sort of flavors of specialized expertise across a university. What business schools are good at is saying, well, you're probably going to need some money. You're probably <laughs> going to need some people. You'll need some supplies. You got to get stuff to the folks that want to buy it from you. You need a legal form. You need to manage how you put all those parts together. That's business school is like in an ideal world, taking a design sensibility to these different components of enterprise and arranging them artfully you know, in our case, according to criteria for equity, you know, good paying jobs, contributing to the community, enabling, you know, community wealth building, democratically accountable. Yeah. So you can build in those yeah, criteria and it should still be a business school. That sounds like current register, though. Now, you don't build a business for it to be sustainable. You build a business so that you can sell it. Or for the community benefit. Yeah, community <laughs> benefit. My God. I mean, you would have to create a very different business school to meet that design criteria. And I think, I mean, part of it is what we're trying to do is, okay, let's re refashion business schools with this different design criteria. Right. 
Well, thankfully, be, as I know from Douglas's last book, um, he has so many billionaire listeners <laughs> to this show that I imagine that there's you know some very good funding listening to this podcast right now, ready to fund uh, a reimagination of business right. schools along Douglas's lines. In order to undermine their own extractive billionaire enterprises. But maybe if they've got $30 billion, they'll be okay going down to 15 How much is enough? Children, right. Their children can live in a, in a happy world. We'll see. Well, shoot. I'm glad to be a part of what you're doing. You give me hope, reason, purpose, a little agita, but, but offer a good cause. So people can find out about Equitable Enterprise by going to iftf.org. That's instituteforthefuture.org. And come, we're going to be doing uh, more podcasts, different sorts of public programs where we're moving from the research and gathering of information stage to the, I think, promotion of ideas and public communications and development of education and all sorts of stuff. And go take, go, if you want to go to business school, don't go to the one you were going to go to. Go to where you're, you Michigan, Jerry, right? Go to you Michigan, study with Jerry, and you can do business, be prosperous, and and feel good about yourself. Be prosperous without hurting little children and baby animals anywhere, right? It can be done. You're right. (laughs) We're definitely trying. Thank you, Douglas. We appreciate the mad props. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. I'm trying. All right. Be good and God bless. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guests today were Marina Gorbis and Jerry Davis, who work with me on the Institute for the Future's Equitable Enterprise Initiative. You can find out more by going to the show notes or go to iftf.org. Be sure to check out Marina's new podcast, Future Now, over at iftf.org slash podcast or wherever fine podcasts are streamed. Our next live salon is going to be on March 31st at 3 p.m. Eastern in the Kibitz Room on the Team Human Discord. Uh, You can come. And you can uh, support the show and the team and everything by uh, going to Patreon or to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. That will also support our producer and editor. The Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. This episode originally appeared on the Team Human podcast. Subscribe at teamhuman.fm. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their future and drive change in themselves and their organizations. To find out more and to subscribe to the Future Now podcast, visit iftf.org.